Hello, my name is Alex Harrington-Griffin. I am the host of the Real Developer Podcast. Welcome back for Series 3. We are still powered by Landtech, the creators of Land Insight and Land Fund. In this episode, I brought in my co-host for this session, Harry Quartermain, Head of Research for Landtech. And together with Harry, we spoke to our two guests, Julian Seymour of Creators Communications and Harry Keane of Real Developer, London Green, to help us work through a very important topic, understanding the role of politics in planning. A deep subject, one that Harry was very, very well prepared for. And we talked about everything from the gossip from the recent party conferences to how to best engage with local councillors. So on that note, let's get on with the show. Welcome back, everyone, to Series 3 of the Real Developer Podcast. We are back for another season, starting with a bit of a hard-hitting subject. And I'm very, very grateful, as your host, Alex Harrington-Griffin, to have a very strong co-host who's going to help me seem a little bit more informed about what's going on. Harry Quartermain from Landtech is my co-host today. Say hello, Harry. Hello, Harry. (laughs) Good man. So I'm Harry Quartermain. I'm Chartered Town Planner, and I'm Head of Research and Insight at Landtech. So I'll be here helping steer this conversation today. Well, as we said in the intro, we are getting into politics within the planning system and the various things that affect SME development community as well. And to help that conversation come to life, we have got Harry Keane from London Green, a real developer, and also Julian Seymour from Creators Communications. Gents, you can also introduce yourself formally so I don't leave any part out. Ladies first. Yeah. <laughs> what about that? Uh, so, hi, I'm Julian Seymour. I'm Managing Director of Creators Planning Communities Teams. Awesome. I'm Harry Keane. I'm a Development Manager at London Green. We're an SME. We've been in existence since about 1998, mainly uh, developing in and around London. Hopefully, I just won't be moaning today about the slow planning system and how archaic it is. We can have a proper conversation. How are you invited back? Because you didn't I know. exactly that. On the other side of the table this time. Yeah. In series two, you uh, did a fantastic job of bringing hard-hitting concepts to life, and that's why you are back in the hot seat. And also, you do a hell of a lot of prep as well, which is uh, always appreciated. Hopefully not as much as my co-host, Harry Quartermain, who I'm going to hand over to lead us into the first questions. And I'll be ready with the uh, silly questions for you guys very shortly. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, so this episode is focused on the role that politics plays in, in planning. Obviously, politics plays an important role in planning. It's the, it's the democratic link for the way that we manage our land. National level, politicians set the agenda and, and they do that by changing the rules of the game via legislation changes, via the national policy framework, things like permitted development orders. At local level, the politicians, again, they set, set the tone of the local plan, set the direction of travel for how the local areas are going to evolve. And they also have an important role in deciding planning applications. But the question is, how well is that working at the moment? We're, we're recording this just at the end of party political conference season. What's been going on, Julian? Well, a fair bit across the three of the main parties. So just finished Labour, Tories before that, and Lib Dems the week before that. We've seen a, a pretty aggressive or bolshy approach from from Labour, uh, with Keir Starmer saying yesterday that he's a, a yimby, saying that he wants to look at some of the green belt and, and review the green belt. And not only that, but that he's prepared to disagree with people, hear them and then disagree, particularly around stations which is, you know, is, is not a new concept, but it's something that's never actually really been brought forward. So he's talked about the grey belt a lot. There's also a fair bit from the Tories, and it's quite confused, actually. The weeks before the conference, we had the Conservatives trying to address the nitrate neutrality uh, issue through the LERB, of the levelling up bill, and then attacking the, uh, the Labour Party when 
that didn't go through because they, they blamed it on the Labour Party. So there's been these kind of mixed messages, whereas Kia's been pro-housing, the Tories been pro-housing on parts, and then at the conference didn't mention housing at all in Rishi's speech. It's quite a confused message from the Tories. The Lib Dems have gone the other way. They tried to get rid of their national housing target of 380,000 a year. At the conference, that motion was defeated. The Lib Dems, unlike the other parties, they put forward policy motions and then they vote on them. And the Lib Dems had a really tub-thumping debate. It was the main debate of the whole conference. Young Liberals and London Liberals were very pro a big housing target per year, so that was 380,000. And they tended to be older Liberal Democrats, home counties Liberal Democrats, were after a, a smaller target, but it was focused on social housing, so that was 150,000. And what we saw was a, a huge vote in favour of the bigger target. Unfortunately, the people who were speaking against the bigger target were the leaders of home counties, authorities, where which would actually be responsible for delivering the bulk of this housing. So even though they've got a national target, it's probably undeliverable. So we, we saw an array of positions. I think Labour, for the industry, is going to be the most pro. And I think business recognises that. And I think it's something, Harry, you've been picking up on for, from your side. Yeah, it was I just it was great to see from Labour really bold and ambitious plans. The devil's always in the detail with these things now, you know. There was there was some kind of you mentioned it, you know, building on the green belt in these grey belt areas that Keir calls them, wanting to build some new towns, you know, similar things like we did off the back of the World War, speeding up the planning process, you know, that's key frustration of developers just getting stuck in that wheel for kind of years on end so that's great i would have liked to have seen him go a bit further about urban areas he talked about gentle urban development and kind of five-story georgian houses i mean i'm not sure that's what we need in kind of central london where we we just need more homes and more affordable homes so maybe could have gone a bit further there all around you know it's, it's really exciting but i'd love to just see a bit more detail on it i think the other part of that is resourcing and this is the big elephant in the room we've been talking before this meeting that there's clearly there's going to be a real problem with actually providing a the money, but b the people to deliver it. The planning people in in councils in national government they're just not there at the moment. Yeah, coming through the system as well. Yeah, another thing to consider. Yeah, I think his his idea was he was going to fund 300 new planners across the board through um, damp duty yeah, taxing people from abroad. Yeah, I mean as a planner, I think they could start by properly funding the planners they've got. At the moment, they're you know they're really struggling to retain people in in the public sector at the moment because it's under under resourced. The flack that the the hardworking public servants get is often not worth the you know the the pay they get for it. So yeah. it's really tough. Just taking that point a bit further, I think it, it it was interesting to see that planning fees going up. Developers are very happy to see that as long as it goes into planning. And the fact that those fees aren't ring fenced for the planning departments in local authorities. Is a real problem. Yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree with what you both said. And we at Landtech, we did a bit of um, number crunching on the the amount of green belt that is in fact grey belt. And you know, the, the, I think they well, they actually released the new stats today, and seven percent of the green belt that is developed at the moment. The numbers I looked at, if we developed just five percent of the green belt, we could deliver ten years worth of housing at three hundred thousand houses a year so you know there's a, there's a lot of opportunity there if you know where to look for it and can we can get out of our own way so we can get those houses built sure. and landowners would love to uh, be uh, calculating their land values after that uh, yeah. house but as well though yeah well that was one thing that Keir said is that when he CPOs land he wouldn't be paying them kind of premium prices which I think might get the backup of a lot of landowners but that's another story 
this is this is uh, an interesting point. Lord Matthew Taylor was making this point yesterday at a conference, and he was saying, if developers they've they're taking these pieces of land and they're yes, the the prices go up of it and lots of the money goes to landowners, but if they're not able to use the uplift in value to actually create great places where people want to live and they still build what are not great developments, then yeah, the government and local authorities will start to CPO it and just say, well, we'll capture the land value ourselves and we'll invest it ourselves. And I think it, there is actually an argument to to doing that. And it's, it's the way it's done in other countries yep. as well. So that's instead of seeing more margin go to the landowner with the uplift and then stripping margin and obviously I suppose budget out of the developer's budget is seeing more going it, it would take it would take more out of the landowner's budget the developer you know development would cost the same the developers don't get the the huge amount of it anyway it's the landowner who makes a real profit on mm. on those greenfield sites so more money more budget for amenities the additional exactly yeah. go into it as well yeah okay I think I think that you know if that comes forward that would be a uh, you know potentially a really good thing but obviously there's some hurdles to overcome before we get there I think what we can probably agree on now is that it's really nice to see a clear vision for how this should be done in the future. You know, obviously this is a hypothetical future. It's the opposition party laying this out at the moment. If you compare that to to what we've seen over the last well five years, definitely, but you know, the you know we've now thirteen years into the current government. I think the stat I uh, looked at in February when the last housing minister came in was that since two thousand and twelve only four of the 13 housing ministers we've had have been in place for more than a year. That is indicative of a kind of lack of direction when it comes to the political engagement with this issue. What do you think the impact of that has been? Yeah, I think it's, it's the same issue across some of the other departments as well, but it, the fact that we're chopping and changing a lot of the time does make it very difficult. And it's not just the housing ministry, it, is, it can be the Secretary of State as well, although it's not quite so acute at that level. It naturally takes time for these people to get up to their to speed on their brief. I think Rachel McLean, we, we looked at her and we, we did a bit of a biography of her and she'd commented on two housing applications and a solar farm in her constituency. Those are her for qualifications for being the housing minister. I mean, that's a pretty tough, steep learning curve. And the next day you, you might be expected to go and answer questions in the House of Commons about any of your briefs. So I think it's a pretty tough gig. It doesn't help because the issues have to be revisited I know that the former chief planner used to have a, a presentation that he would give to each of the ministers as they came in, uh, just this is how the housing system works. The fact that you have to do that every single time is a real problem and it doesn't lead to any consistency. What developers want, I think, Harry, is is certainty. Yeah, I think it, it just takes the momentum out of things and it takes a sting out of it. You know, if you don't have kind of, if, if you're chopping and changing a leader, whether it's sport, whether it's politics, you know, it's very difficult to make change. So I think that's the main thing. We need a bit of consistency, whether that's blue or red, it just needs to kind of have the same person in place for a prolonged period of time to make a real difference. I mean, that that plays out across the industry rather than just, you know, not just the developers feeling that. I mean, the amount of consultant hours that have gone into responding to the the white paper and then the MPPF reforms, which were supposed to be launched in the spring, and we're now getting near winter and we still have seen nothing of them. And the Leveling Up Regeneration Bill, there's been a lot of time spent on talking about policy that might or might not turn out. So yeah, that consistency and that, that clarity of what's going to change, when it's going to change and what the impacts are going to be would be really good. If the government does change next year, what's it going to mean? We've talked a bit about what's been said in the conferences, but you know, Harry, on the ground for, for you know, developers and, and the SME sector. Yeah. What are you looking forward to? I think it's really good news. You know, we've got Labour have pledged 1.5 million homes in five years. Obviously, 
They're conscious that they're not going to hit kind of 300 homes, uh, 300,000 homes each year on year, and it's going to take some time to build up to that. So that makes complete sense. We just touched on the new towns and, you know, it's great that there's huge ambitions here. I know you've referred to the fact that there's plenty of Greenbelt. Just concerned about where these new towns are going to go, though. You know, people have talked about the arc between Oxford and Cambridge potentially being somewhere where there could be a new town. But then from the perspective of this podcast, you know, what role is SMEs playing in that? If you're kind of master planning these huge towns, it's it's more than likely going to be very large kind of developers putting these master plans in, in place. Let's carve out a bit of that kind of area for SMEs to, to kind of play their role in that as well. I think that's really important. And there was also a, a piece by uh, Keir talking about devolution of powers to the mayors in the different kind of councils, which is really great, if, I think, if uh, nationally and locally uh, we're working together and pulling in the same direction to kind of push housing through. I am a bit concerned if there's a fracture nationally and locally, if we've got different kind of local parties to the national party, could that kind of create some fraction there? Might be overthinking it, but on the whole, it's it's really, really exciting. Yeah. I think you're just on that last point between about fracture. I think you're exactly right. You you can just look at London under Sadiq Khan with a conservative government, and that's been yeah. a very difficult relationship, particularly between... Boris Johnson, who was the previous uh, London mayor, and Sadiq, and that, that hasn't worked. So the funding has not come for London. For example, Barking Dagenham, they often make the point that you know they're one of the most deprived boroughs in the whole of the country, and yet they're not eligible for levelling up funding uh, because simply because they sit in London. There hasn't been an argument made around that because the relationships are so broken. Mm. And then we see in places like Bristol, if the relationship between the mayor and the people doesn't quite work, then you can actually see that get rid of the mayor. So Marvin Rees, who someone who was pushing for more development, more affordable housing, because there's a waiting list of five to 10 years in Bristol for a secure housing place. He was pushing for a lot more housing to be built. And as part of the reason he was unwound and, and they've changed the form of government down there, so there'll be no mayor after May next year. But sorry, going back to the government changes next year, both the Liberal Democrats and Labour have talked about more social housing. By that, they, they don't mean affordable housing, capital A, capital H. They mean social rent, more council housing. Uh, what's not clear is exactly how that would be paid for yet. And so we need a bit more detail around that. It's interesting that that typology of tenure has come back into conversation because you, you mentioned the 300,000 houses a year target, Harry, which obviously is supposed to be the target every mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last time that was hit was in the 1970s and that was only hit thanks to the significant contribution of the council housing building that was going on at the time. And since that's been wound down in the 80s, we've never got anywhere close. So it'd be interesting to see if that changes. I want to segue now onto, you mentioned the, the changes at the national level affecting the, the, the local. We want to flip that around and go, how has the changes of direction at the national level affected local politics and the way that local politicians have been engaging with the planning process? I actually think it's symbiotic. Politics at the local level have affected what's happening at national level and the other, the other way around. So if you look at the Conservatives in the home counties, their traditional southern bastion, they feel that housing and the need to provide more housing has become one of the reasons why they have lost a lot of ground to Lib Dems, Greens, Independents, which you saw in, in May this year at the local elections. And so nationally, Michael Gove, the Secretary of State, and has kind of looked at changing the MPPF changing housing targets, making them mandatory or not mandatory. And actually, that has then affected how local councils have then gone about their business and and they've reduced the need for house building or they've delayed their local plans or they've just put them on the shelf and said, well, we're just going to wait and see what happens. So it's kind of circular. 
but every every change has caused a delay and that delay has meant fewer houses being built. Then you add in the the national stuff around Liz Truss, interest rates, and you've had a real perfect storm of, of bad things for house developers. So obviously the local members who are in the, the forefront of, of those decisions to either delay things or, or not, but they play an important role in the planning process at local level. Do you want to outline your, your involvement with that and what, why that democratic link is important? Yes. So I mean, we are a democracy and I think what the intention is that our democratic representatives give us some voice within the system, clearly, but without going back to my politics degree and Burke's Law and all these sorts of things, you know, the question is, are they there just to parrot what we as a community think or are they there to talk about the the need for the national body or the local, you know, the local authority? And I think what's happened locally is we've actually found that more people are now being hyper-local and they're representing exactly, you know, they're just saying exactly what their local community think. And, and that's quite interesting. It, it is, has been a change and it does mean that we've actually seen a bit of a slowdown in, in the way that housing has been developed and delivered. And it is, it, as developers, as, sorry, as, um, as developers, it is important then to make sure we're engaging with them, finding out what they and communities want and playing into that or leaning into it. What do you think, Harry? Yeah, definitely. I think I get frustrated sometimes in that you're often bringing in kind of local politicians or councillors at a very late stage. Mm. It almost comes, you know, even after a public consultation or just before you're going to committee, you might have a chance to have a, a committee briefing with the planning committee members just before that. You want to be talking to these guys potentially even before you bought a site. And I think, you know, sometimes they're slightly guarded because, you know, they don't want to be seen as the councillor from the rock and roller and doing something, you know, incorrectly. But they're humans just like the rest of us. And getting access to them, I think, is really important to just understand, you know, not just about your development and, you know, what's important on the, the site that you own, but also what do the community want? What are their needs? And try and factor that into your development in some way. Totally agree. And I think that's something we'll talk about in the next episode, I think, the local plan making. But and we can certainly help. Uh, that's, that's what Creators does. We, we help engage with community politicians. Uh, but I think one of the, the issues there is it, is it becomes too late when it's, here's our application. It needs to be, in my view, here's our aspiration. What can we all do together that's going to make it a win-win for all of us? Is that alongside pre-app or is that literally a standalone exercise where you're gathering your your community feedback. I mean, obviously, it's, it depends how big your site is. I mean, if you're if you're doing three houses, there's a, there's a limit to how much mm. you're delivering. But if you're doing fifteen hundred, then you might have you can play with. See, in one of the one of the schemes we've been working on called Birchwood Garden Suburb, we did a hands-on planning exercise. Two and a half thousand plus homes, plus a massive country park, schools, community facilities, transport facilities, and because we were able to do that at the outset. We've got 35 objections. It's a green belt site. And I think also, if I know, obviously I said um, getting in front of the councillors from the outset is, is the ideal. But if you can't, you know, use guys like Kratos, you know, going into a new borough that I've not worked in before. So, so it was Bromley. I know we, we worked together in Bromley. Getting kind of a A to Z of who each planet, who each politician is, what's their key interest, what are their bugbears, doing something in Lambeth at the moment. They've just announced the, the first borough to announce the climate emergency. So like, you know that sustainability is going to be a huge thing that's going to come up at committee and going to have to go above and beyond there. It's funny you mentioned that, Harry, because um, we'd heard that from a lot of other developers as well. And knowing that who's who in the council and what their positions are going to be and what the 
split of the council and particularly the DM committees are is mm. important for getting these things through, which is why we've Atlantic been working with Kratos to provide that information in our uh, in our regional reports and our um, every LPA in the country has now got an LPA data sheet which talks about talks about planning determination periods and appeal overturn rates and approval rates and importantly who's who in the council and what their likely hot buttons are going to be. Yeah, so, and hopefully it won't put you off buying the site. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> but even even if it does, forewarned is forearmed, doesn't it? So exactly, know that up front. The question would be, you know, obviously there are flaws in this process at the moment because one of the things you've talked about before, Gillian, is is about the the level of training that uh, members have, and particularly when there's been in the local elections recently a whole lot of independents and you know hyper local, as you say, who don't have any necessary training in in this and look at the local rather than the national agenda. Is there a better alternative for this? Well, I mean, it, just in the current system, more training would be good. Because I mean, some of these guys only get two hours maximum, uh, which, you know, when you've invested a million and a half plus in mm. an application, then you've got some guys who are doing their best, but they don't know what they're really to be meant to be focusing on. But you, I think, Harry, one of the things you were talking about is some of the other countries and, and how those systems work. At, we are a democracy, as I said before. So... You have to have that democratic link. Mm. But how do we give a more of a voice to officers? How do we give a more voice to businesses? And how do we get people who have not historically been involved in consultations, you know, the people who might live in new houses, for example, yeah. how do we get their voices heard a bit better? And that, I think that's, that's always been a challenge for us. But I think you've, you've got to... Yeah, so in I worked for nearly 10 years in Sydney and in New South Wales during, during that time, they introduced local planning panels. So they... The, the delegated applications still go to the officers and the anything that would have previously gone to a committee of members instead went to a, a local planning panel which had some members on it but also had some uh, technical specialists so it ensures that the the committee is always informed by and is made by people who who have training in in relevant term in relevant fields so it means that you get less situations where members overturn something for an, a reason that won't later stand up in appeal are they starting to do something similar like that in the OPDC? I think they are because I took I took a scheme to um, committee last year in the OPDC, and we were the committee was made up of four members, four of which were councillors, made up of Hammersmith and Fulham, Brent and Ealing, and one other from I'm not sure where. The other four were professionals, ex-professionals, current professionals, current planners. We were hung four four. I can yeah. tell you who <laughs> voted for what. <laughs> So it sounds like it's, it could be coming in in a quasi way already within that kind of OPDC regeneration area. Yeah, well, I, I guess that's even if it is coming in there, it's a long way to go before it yeah. affects the rest of the country. I mean, I was looking at some some research from 2017, which which looked at the number of overturns at appeal for applications that have been refused against the officer's recommendation. And it was um, 65% overturn rate at appeal for for member overturns versus only 40% overturn rate for applications that were refused in line with the officer's recommendation. So mm. there's obviously a real public interest in in making sure that when members are refusing things, particularly against the officer's recommendation, they're doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. And, and from a developer's point of view, you know, that's when you get really frustrated with the system. You know, that discretionary decision-making and that subjectivity, which is at the heart of our planning policy, really comes into play. That's where the political, you know, side of it comes into play, and they can find ways legitimately to refuse an application. And as a developer, you have convictions in what you submitted, and yes, you're confident in your appeal, and you'll probably get something on appeal, but it will take you kind of two, three years and another kind of few million quid potentially to get there. 
Yeah, indeed. I think it's a frustration that many feel in the industry now. So given that that's where we're at at the moment and for the foreseeable, I mean, what would be your top tips for the best time to engage with members at the moment in order to get the best outcome? Early. Uh, I mean, engage as early as you can. And Harry, you, you mentioned it already. Uh, find out what they what's acceptable, what people like. If you can, look beyond the red line. Don't just look at your site in isolation. What do people around it, what's in it for them? Mm. And if you can show that there's something there for them, that you know, whether it's a playground, whether it's a, a, a piece of green space, whether it's investment in one of their local... The tangible, tangible outcome. Tangible outcome that's for existing residents. I think that's a, that's a big thing. But you'll only find out that if you engage early. I've found in a couple of the more recent PPA planning performance agreements that I've signed, um, one in Lambeth especially, they've started to bring that ward councillor engagement into that kind of pre-app, that PPA process. And although they're not the guys that are sitting on the committee, they're at the forefront of the community and they're the guys who are going out and speaking to the people with the pitchforks more often than not and trying to kind of talk them down. And if you can kind of speak to them as a spokesperson for the public at an early stage, I found that that's really helped as well. Gents, that is going to be all the time we have available for this session. I'm pretty sure with politics, you can really dig into a lot of questions that I've had to bite my lip a little bit, not only to sound uh, a little bit more intelligent throughout this session, but also because I think we're only going to have to squeeze in so many in this subject. So Harry, Julian and Harry, thank you very much for helping us delve into the session. Thanks. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. It's your host, Alex Andrew Griffin, again, just to say thank you for joining us for this episode. If you liked it, hit the like button, subscribe, and of course, share it with your peers. A big thank you to our partners, Land Tech, for powering this episode. If you want to find out more about their products like Land Insight or Land Fund, go to land.tech or follow Land Tech on LinkedIn for SME developer updates, finance updates, and of course, the data and research mentioned in this episode. We'll see you back for the next session when we get into some real development conversation. Thank you.